Welcome to a Revival House Sermon, where we champion you to become the unveiling of Jesus to this world. I think I'm just going to jump right into it. I think the most important thing that you can develop in the coming year is your belief and your understanding in the Trinity. You can write that down, quote me on that. I think the most important thing where God is taking us is our belief and understanding of the Trinity. Because what I'm continuing to discover is that it actually is underemphasized because people don't realize the value of it, mostly because of what we've created the gospel out to be. The Trinity is not a huge part of it. I mean, it's enough to have God sending Jesus, but that's about it. But in reality, as I'm, I'm digging into um, the real, like what, what the disciples would have believed and the patristic fathers, the central, most important thing that they hammered out, and probably the most important thing that the disciples and the patristic fathers ever did was hammer out the understanding of the Trinity. It, it protects you from heresy. It protects you from getting off on wrong tracks. And it is the most powerful thing ever. And all of you are like, okay. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. That's why you don't understand. You're not standing up saying, go right there. It's the Trinity. You're like, I don't get it. Mostly because you're Westerners. But, I mean, the Nicene Creed was one of the greatest things that early Christianity created was that it said, no. The, the, the Nicene Creed came about because there was an idea that Jesus was not the Son of God but that he was one of God's chief creations, right? It would make Jesus not God. It would just make him like his very best creation, his son. There's other heresies that going out that was really common is that God was just a single, austere, one-person God. And praise God for the heritage that we have of the early church fathers saying, no, you're wrong. The Trinity is three people but they love each other so well that you could, the best way to describe them is one. And they defended that. And you know what? St. Nick literally slapped a dude for believing that Jesus wasn't God. That's true. Do you guys know that? Old St. Nick, who's Santa now? Literally, Caleb and I, we love to talk about this. It was Arius was getting up because Arianism was going around and it was that Jesus was just, it was God's chief, um, uh, creation was talking about this, and Saint Nick literally gets up, walks up, and slaps him across the face. There's, there's Santa Claus. That, that's what we're gonna do. That's no, no, and that's not what we're gonna do. <laughs> Don't quote me on that part. No, <laughs> but it, that's how important it was to them that they were like, no, this is all of our foundation. Everything that we believe is built upon this one thing. And if you take one little block out of this, the whole thing falls apart. Your whole gospel falls apart. 
God's love falls apart everything. And people don't realize that. And so, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in it, honestly, but I am going to turn to John chapter 1. Now that I've made my thesis statement. I bet you can locate it. It's in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him, nothing was created that was created. It's just the greatest thing. You know, when we say the Word of God, uh, uh, probably a picture of a Bible shows up in your mind. But I'm sorry, if you read the Bible, the Bible says the Word of God is Jesus in flesh. Don't shoot me. That's what it said right there. It did not say in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God. It was the Word. This is just Jesus in print, okay? This is, all right? (laughs) I love it. But when you say the Word of God, if you really want to be accurate, talking about Jesus. Because, you know, and people say, oh, the Word of God. And even Westerners sometimes don't even get this, me included, because I didn't. But in the beginning was the Word. What is John? Everybody else started with genealogies, and John came along and goes, you know what? No, 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 no. You guys are going to Abraham or Adam or whatever. He says, I'm going to go before that. I'm going to before this whole universe was even created. He's going to go, and I'm going to go to what was only there when nothing was here, and that was the Word and God and the Spirit were face-to-face with each other. What is, the Word being Jesus, what does that even mean? The Word, that is what God has to say about himself. That's his thoughts, his intentions, and his desires are embodied in the person of Jesus. And when he became incarnate, he was able to manifest those desires to this world. That's why the incarnation The day Jesus being born onto this planet is the most incredible moment in history next to the cross because it was the moment that God became flesh. The word, the desires, the intentions, the ideas of God are Jesus. But this is what's amazing. He says, in the beginning was the word. That means, listen to this. This is awesome. I was reading uh, C. Baxter Kruger's book, and he, he, he explains this, and I'm like, I'm blown away. But he says, in the beginning was the word. That means before anything ever happened, God has an idea, an intention, and a desire. And that predates everything. So what did God change when Adam and Eve fell and they messed up his plan? No, because in the beginning, he had his word, his idea, his intentions, his desires for humanity and for the universe. Before everything, God already had a plan, and that was the Word. And the plan was already to make Jesus incarnate. Nobody got that, but that'll settle in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What he's saying, in the the beginning was his thoughts, his intentions, his desires embodied in Jesus, and he and Jesus were one together, face to face. That with is They were face-to-face in loving union, and they had a plan and a desire before anything you ever did. So you can't change God because he already had the plan. 
right? He was in the beginning with God. He's laying out now that he's, he was in the beginning. The word was Jesus before all of your plans, before our eyes. He was God. All things were created through him, and without him, nothing was created that was created. In him was life, and life was the light of mankind. And so I say just that little bit because the Trinity is the most important thing you can believe. And the Trinity is one of the, is one of, out of the couple of things that you do believe as a Christian, is one of the biggest defining factors out of every religion in the world. Nobody else has a God that is three in one. They got millions of different gods, but they're not three in one. The Trinity is the most defining factor that you believe as a believer. It's incredibly important to you. But, so, why is it so important? Because St. Athanasius talked about this, who mostly wrote the Nicene Creed. But he said, if there was ever a moment that God was not three in one, then there would be a possibility that God's nature would not be relational. We're going deep tonight. We're going to go deep tonight. I'm going to, yeah, I know. I'm going to, we're going deep tonight, y'all. All right. So here's the deal. God is a relational being by the very fact that he is three in one. God is not austere, uh, alone, a narcissistic, or anything like that. Because he is three in one, it says, and even in this, it talks about this. And then, and, and then when Jesus prays in John 17, he says, I love the Father and the Father loves me and we love the Spirit. And basically the description is, Jesus loves the Father. The Father loves Jesus. They both love the Spirit. The Spirit, and this just goes back and forth, and they all just love each other. And they love each other so well and so much that the best way to describe the love that they share as three distinct people is that they are one. And here is a huge definition. This is, if you're writing something down, this is what's really important for you to write down or make a note in your mind. The best description of agape love, right, which is love of God that God kind of has. People often will call it God love, right? Agape love, the best description of agape love is to be other-centered love, not self-centered love. So it's me saying, you know, I'm going to love Elaine because I love who she is, the way she is, the, the person that she is, her personality, being around her. I love her, and you know what? I'm going to love her, and I don't want anything in return. She don't have to give me nothing. She don't have to do nothing for me. She can just be over there for as long as she wants. I just love her. That's called being other-centered because there's no way that that love is going to come back to me, and I'm not doing it for the intention of loving ever coming back to me. I'm 100% an other-centered love. That's agape. And so the best description of God, the only is statement in the entire Bible, is that God is love. God is agape love. And that means God is other-centered love all the time, and he cannot change. That is why you have to have a trinity. 
because he doesn't have anyone else to love if he's by himself. So if you have three, then God can always be other-centered. He can be other-centered to Holy Spirit, and he can be other-centered to Jesus and Jesus, and they're constantly never looking for love for themselves because that would be self-centered. They're always loving the other person. Oh, I just love you so much. And Oh, I love you so much. And this happens so much. This is the agape swirl of love. The early patristic fathers saw how much they loved each other and that they loved each other completely selfless, other-centered, with no loss of self yet. They didn't demean themselves in any way. They just gave themselves to another person that they said, that is a circle dance. That is perichoresis. And so the Trinity has to be, there has to be the three in the Trinity so they can be other-centered, loving each other with nothing in return. And so when St. Athanasius says, if you take Jesus out of the circle, if you mess up the circle of love of God, then there is a chance that God could be other than relational. Because when we say God is three, we're saying his very being is to have relationship with another person other than himself. God has to be three because he has relationship with Jesus and relationship with the Spirit. If you take away the Spirit and Jesus, or you take away someone, or you take away both of them, then you have a single God. And that means his nature is not to be relational, it's to be alone. So God has to be three in one so that he can be a relational God. Because this will come really important when he creates us. But square one, you need to go back before the universe. And before the universe was ever created, you need to nail this down. God is three in one. And he is agape love, other-centered. And he is a relational being. That is the foundation of all Christianity. If you mess up that little bit before time even began, then you will never end on the right spot. You will never end at the right place unless you have a picture of God being other-centered and relational. It's incredibly important. That's why they fought so hard. The early church, that's why I said, the greatest thing the early church ever did and the early church fathers was they fought tooth and nail for this truth. You can imagine the world that they came into, that whether it be Greek or pagan or even Jewish, the, the Jews really predominantly think of God as one, but they, were, they found in early texts they were questioning and starting to wonder if God was like three in one because even in the Old Testament, there's some, some keys of like, uh, why is he using certain tenses of we and stuff like that? But anyways, you know, so the world that they were going into, they were really pushing the boundaries when they were going, no, we've seen Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, and we know the Father, and he's three, and it's nothing else. And everyone had real lots of problems with that. And they fought tooth and nail for this truth. And so we have to, have to, have to, have to see this importance. And you'll see the importance even more. So... What is it that happens when God is in this place of relational agape love, in this swirl of love, 
And in the beginning was the word, the thoughts, intentions, and desires and heart of God said, you know what? We are going to create man. So here, let's also turn to Ephesians 1. Uh, We'll skip the introductions, so we'll go to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons to himself through Yeshua according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in beloved. I don't know if I should go on or not. There's a lot there. Mm, Let's not get distracted. So, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. Focus on that. To adoption as sons to himself through Yeshua, according to his goodwill and pleasure. What Paul is looking at and seeing inside of this is he, amazingly, Paul is looking and going, predestined means, all right, you were already predestined to be adopted, and then there's another verse, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, right? What is that saying? I don't believe in predestination. I'm not a Calvinist. God forbid, right? But what it is, is that his pre-plan, his desire, his, before he even created, this is what, you got to think about this really closely. Before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created anything, he pre-planned that he would take you and he would turn you into Jesus. That means to be conformed into the image of Jesus is that he's saying, before everything happened, before my original, listen, I'm going to make a big statement. God's original plan was to incarnate Jesus and to bring humanity into the Trinity. That was not the backup plan. That was the original plan. And Paul is saying he Before the foundations of the earth, before anything happened, he pre-planned, predestined to conform you to Jesus so that you could be one with them. Sin did not change God, nor did sin change his plan. It just showed the journey it was going to take to get us to inside of him. It's going to mess you up. It's going to mess you up. It's also going to mess up your Western theology too. It is. That's what it's saying. John 1, before the beginning was the word. Paul, you were predestined to be conformed to his image. And what he is, he's saying, look, why, why, why am I talking about, why is the Trinity so important? Because Why would God pre-plan for you to be in Jesus, which is in him, unless he was a relational being? He's wanting relationship. And because his very nature is to be other-centered relational being, he came up with a plan. They came up with a plan. 
And they said, let's make humanity. And let's put them right here with us. But the plan is going to be Jesus. You're going to have to go become one. You're not going to lay down your Godhead or anything like that because you are the sustainer of the universe. But you're going to go have to become a man. You're going to have to become incarnate. And then you are going to come back as a man. When Stephen was stoned and the heavens opened up, who was sitting at the right hand of the Father? The Son of Man. He says, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. He did not say, oh, I see the Spirit Jesus sitting at the Father. He said, no, the Son of Man always is. I see a, basically, let me put it in English, I see a human sitting next to God, and that human is Jesus. And what he was saying is, humanity is in Jesus. We are in the perichoresis. But as soon as you mess up the Trinity, you lose the ability that that's the purpose of God. But if you truly know Orthodox theology, that is that this is what they believe, that God is a relational being. And everything that happened after that is why everything happened. And so here God is saying, we love each other so much. We want to share this because we're other-centered. You may be like, well, why would God want to do that? Because he's not selfish like you. <laughs> because he's other-centered. The other great fact and truth about Christianity that makes you different from every other religion on planet Earth is that God is humble. Every other God cares about himself. Every other God is austere and is uh, pulled back. Every other God is, look, is, is by themselves. But God is the only God that is a relational God who shares his love with others and is humble about it. And because he's humble and because he's relational, he said, we want to create someone else to share our love with. And out of the love that was inside the Trinity before any of this happened, he planned you out. He planned who you'd be. And he said, I love them. They're perfect. And we're going to bring them in. You were predestined to be conformed to like Jesus. Everything that heaven has, everything that God owns, he has already planned to give it to you. It was already in his plan to give you everything. That was not an afterthought. This is a really important thing. You need to ask yourself, go wrestle with this. I don't care. You don't have to decide this tonight. But go wrestle with this. Did Adam and Eve sinning change God? To me, that's a dumb, I'm like, no, obviously it doesn't. But if you really play out, if you really play out the whole scenario in a lot of Western thought, it changed God because suddenly this mad, angry God came out of nowhere and said, oh, I got to take care of this sin. And then Jesus had to die on the cross to deal with the angry God problem or at least put a veil of blood between us. But in reality, he's going, no. It was always in my plan to bring these people in. This was God's idea. There is no two sides of God. There is only one side of God, and that is 
perfectly and absolutely shown in the person of Jesus. If you can't find it in Jesus, why are you finding it in God? Because he says, I am the express image of my Father. I am the mirror image of my Father. No man has seen the Father but me. So that means all y'all's idea of who the Father is are totally jacked up because I'm about to set everything straight. And so here is, here is man being created out of this place of we want to share this. We're going to do this. And they said, whatever the cost is to bring humanity in, that's what we're going to do. Jesus is going to become incarnate. He's going to become a human. That's the plan. I said, we don't know how that's going to happen exactly. I don't know if they actually said that. But basically what I'm trying to say is they, they weighed the cost and they said, what if this happens? What if this happens? Then we'll pay that price and we'll do it because they are 100% other-centered. He is so good, so loving, so kind, so beautiful that he would say, I may lose everything, but I want to share this with humanity. That's how good your God is. And I think we've lost how good God is when we think about that. And the whole Trinity is based on that one fact, that God is good, that he's loving, that he's other-centered. And it's the most important thing. Anytime you get off course, you've got to go back to the Trinity. And honestly, I think we have predominantly in, in Christianity how many sermons have you actually heard on the Trinity? Not very many. Like, it's not like we don't know how to explain it, and we don't know why it's important. We just go, well, yeah, God's three in one, you know? <laughs> you know, God's three in one, and then we just, like, move on to the next thing. Let's see what else I can make you do to earn it, you know? But how many sermons are just purely on the Trinity? Because that shows the character of God is this three in one. And so I'm, I'm, I'm using some big swaths right now. We're do, I'm, I'm not getting too in-depth at the moment, but I'm using some pretty big swaths of big ideas. And maybe and in the days forward, we'll probably narrow in on these details. But I'm just, I'm seeing this, I'm reading these things, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what God's saying, and I'm going, oh my gosh, like, yeah, this is the most important thing that we, that we could ever believe. And if you just make this, it's a, it, may, it feels really small to you, perhaps, right now, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. The, hair, the little turn of going, oh yeah, God is 100% relational, good, agape loving, other-centered, okay, now take that God and translate everything you think you know through the Bible. And anything that disagrees, don't move on. Go, wait a minute. Who is this really describing? And whose interpretation am I believing in this? Because does this line up with the thing that predated everything? Because here we are. Well, let's talk about Adam and Eve a little bit. This is, this is what's amazing. <clears throat> this is how this will change you. The Trinity will change you as well because it changed Adam and Eve in a good way. So 
here are Adam and Eve, these created beings, and I uh, can't remember what his name was. <clears throat> Somebody, Professor Torrance, uh, makes this statement. It's awesome. He says, where did Adam and Eve learn to, to reach out and love God? And he says, it was not programmed into them. It was a result of encountering God. And he explains it like this. He says, when, when you hear the truth, right? So we know, Jesus said, the truth shall set you free, right? That's Bible. The truth shall set you free. That's incredibly deep. And so as Torrance proposes, he says, this is what Adam and Eve experienced in their relationship with God. They had nothing else to base the relationship with God off of other than their experience with him. And so when they encounter him and relate to him, they hear the truth of what God thinks about them, of who God is, and how he feels about them. And that truth is, oh, he's loving, he's kind, he's good, he's gracious. There's no, there's no darkness, there's no turning, there's no other side. He's amazing. Wow. And that truth gives you assurance. And assurance is, ah, I'm safe. I'm good. Because you can't, listen to this. This is a very big statement. You can't give yourself to someone unless you can trust that you're safe. And so the truth, and this is the way Baxter Kruger breaks it down, and it's brilliant. The truth is that God's good and loving and kind, and he loves me and he likes me. And that gives me assurance and safety that I'm okay. And then what does assurance and safety give you? Freedom. What is freedom to do what? Freedom to reach out. Freedom to step out. Freedom to love. Freedom to enjoy. Freedom to know someone. Freedom to experience. So the truth shall set you free because the truth is that you're safe, you're loved, you're beloved, you're delighted in. That gives you assurance that you're going to be okay. And that says, I can reach out to God. And we can have union and belovedness. And that's why truth sets you free. That's why the truth that God gives you sets you free. Because then it says, okay. And even if I receive the truth of God, that I'm loved and delighted and I'm safe and I'm good, I can now reach out to someone else and love them. What does that do to you? That makes you other-centered. Bingo, you've got it. When you hear the truth of God, you get the assurance and the freedom to become not self-centered, taking care of yourself, making sure you're going to be okay, but other-centered so that I can love you and I don't need anything in return because I'm good. And suddenly, by interacting with the Trinity, they now get to love like the Trinity, fully other-centered. And that was the garden where all life grows. So now, what happens? Again, I'm going to quote Braxter Kruger, don't care, I love the man, I'm impressed. <laughs> I think he's written some of the most incredible things on planet Earth. But until I write something. But anyways, <laughs> just kidding. I'm working on the humility part, okay? Don't judge me. But no, anyways. Uh, so what happens? 
what happens when a kid believes there's a monster in the closet? Gets a gun, shoots the thing, goes back to sleep. If Dawson was a kid with a gun and he thought there was a monster in the closet, it would have holes. But anyways, that'd make a holy closet. Dawson would make sure it's clear. <laughs> clear. Anyway, so what happens when the kid thinks there's a monster in the closet? Fear, anxiety, and suddenly they go, they can't leave their room and they can't get out of the bed and they got to stay under the covers because there's something there that they can't see that's scaring them. So here Adam and Eve are, and they come to the tree, and as we all know the story, when Satan comes to them and says, hey, eat this fruit. She goes, no, I can't eat that fruit because I'll surely die. And he goes, no, you won't surely die. You'll become like God. Boom. First thing that happened was, wait, two things happened at that moment was, you mean God could be holding back something from us? Ooh, there's a monster in the closet of God. Is there something there that, is there another side of God? And then suddenly, am I not whole? Am I not everything that God said I was? So two things happened. God changed and Adam changed. And suddenly, sin did not enter when they ate the fruit. That was the literal, get it, fruit of their belief. See, you, we're running around going, hey, y'all, y'all, y'all stop sinning. Y'all stop doing drugs. Y'all stop doing this stuff. Y'all stop having these problems. And we're just looking at the flesh fruit, and we're not asking the question of, what is it that you believe about God and yourself that's saying that you can eat this fruit of sin, being empty of who you were created to be? What are you believing? Why is it in the New Testament, the most repeated word in the whole New Testament is repent, which means not, oh, be penitent and cry because you're such a terrible person, but change the way you think. Why is that the most important thing in the New Testament? Change the way you think because if Adam and Eve had changed the way they thought, they would have never ate the fruit. So instead of me chasing fruit problems in the world, what if I start chasing the way you think problems in the world and we'll change the fruit? So Adam and Eve suddenly go, oh my gosh, God, there's something in the closet with God and there's something in the closet with me and suddenly I'm not whole and he's not who he says he is and they believe the lie and at that moment creation changed. And suddenly when the New Testament says that you, when you know the truth and it'll set you free, that know is that you will intimately experience. It's the same word that Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. When you knew the truth, it creates the child of truth, of freedom. But when they knew, and it said at that moment, they knew the lie. They knew the lie, and suddenly lie began to give birth to the fruit. And so they said, well, and so then what came out of that? So what happens What rises inside you when suddenly there's a, there's a, there's a, Something in the closet of God and something in the closet of you. It, what did you hear the response was? <gasps> it was fear. It was anxiety. And it was self-centeredness. We have to self-preserve. We have to self-preserve. We've got to take care of ourselves. Eat that fruit. Because now we are going to do our own work. We're going to use our own strength and our own power. I think that's the very opposite of grace. 
kind of sounds like law. Trying to do it yourself. It's the DIY righteousness. That's what law is. So suddenly they said, we'll do something ourselves to appease our own anxiety. We'll seek out something ourselves. And you see it domino so fast. Adam blames Eve. He's not being other-centered. He's self-centered. Eve blames the snake. And then their own children start killing each other. And it just dominoes. Because ever since then, they were infected with a disease. And that is the infection. And we've all been infected. All of humanity got infected with this disease. And the disease was the delusion that there's something in the closet of God. And so if you can redeem the Trinity, that God is 100% relational, and that there is nothing in the closet of God, there is no dark side of God, then you can get rid of the very thing that made Adam and Eve drop their identity. That's why the character of God is the most important thing that we will ever fight for on planet Earth. So here we are, falling down into this hole. Again, St. Athanasius describes it. He said when he's describing the fall of Adam, he says, humanity was falling into nothingness. And just for your own information, Athanasius describes it. He says, I wonder if humanity had been allowed to continue on, that they would have fallen into such nothingness that Jesus would have to remove himself from creation 100% and everything would evaporate. Because Jesus is the only thing, he's the sustainer of all things. He is the thing that holds all of your neutrons and electrons and everything together. Without Jesus, those all are gone. So if Jesus ever removes his hand from creation, creation ceases to exist. That was also on the line when Jesus became a man. What if he fell into the delusion? Then what would happen to the universe? That might be too deep. Too deep? Too deep. We'll hit that on another night. But, but Athanasius was saying they're falling into nothingness because sin, best described, is to hamartia, is to be empty, void, darkness of identity. It's of your intended design. And the farther we fell from our intended design, the more nothingness we went into. And that's why Athanasius was like, what would have happened? Would Jesus had to have completely pulled back and out as they just fell into nothingness? Luckily, that didn't happen, and we're still here. So, but, <laughs> but it's that thought of that's the way the early patristic fathers saw it. And so, without going for 10 more hours, I don't know how to land this plane, but because there's so much more. But so, again, this is probably the best. In, in Baxter Kruger's book, he quotes it a whole bunch. And I've, I've listened to Athanasius's book called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. It's a pretty great little book. And uh, um, in that, his, probably the greatest statement from that book is this. He says, what was God being good to do when he saw his creation lapsing into nothingness. Like that is the most brilliant sentence. What was God to do 
being that he's good, going to do about this problem? Athanasius is sitting there going, what are you going to do, God? And because you're good, you can't sit back because there is something inside of you that says, no, I will not let you go. I will not let you fall into the delusion of the lie of who I am. I will not let you leave. I will not let this overtake you. And before even man had sinned, God had a plan, and that was we are going to become one of them, and we are going to experience the entire delusion that they believe about me and themselves so that we can blow it up from the inside out. Let me premise a few things and see that I'm about to ruin your Western theology if I have not already shaken a few things, hopefully, God willing. And that is that if this is only about morality, then we're just trying to deal with the fruit problem. But if I tell you, no, this is a relational problem. And this is that we've believed a lie about God and ourselves, and that is why we have a fruit problem. Then you chasing sin around and making sin a morality issue, you never, ever deal with the reason you don't have freedom. Because freedom comes from the truth, not from you trying to get your act together. And I wonder why in Western Christianity, we're so selfish, we're so self-involved, we're so anxiety-ridden, and we're so messed up because we've made it a morality issue. You read the early writings, holiness was never defined, holiness to define God was never about him not sinning, never. It was only when it made it to Rome did holiness become about not sinning? Because Rome was a judicial system with judges and laws and all this stuff. It was never about that. Holiness was always described as God being other than everything else in the universe. That, yeah, we go, oh, well, you know, he's separated like a tool for whatever. And it's not a compliment to God to say that he's not sinning. Because that's, that's dumb, because God, be, uh, God can't be tempted by sin. Like, why would God even look at sin and think about doing that? You know, that's dumb. And to say, oh, man, God, you don't sin. You're such amazing, which is great. But that's not a real compliment. What's a real compliment is, God, there's no one like you. There's not a being in the universe that is like you. There's no God. There's no nothing. You are other than <laughs> everything. You are other than Anything that could ever be, you, there's no one like you. You're different. You're other. You're separated. You're amazing. It's not that he's not unapproachable. It's that he's like nothing we've ever experienced. That was how holiness was always defined and seen until we made it a morality issue. But that's not a compliment to God. What's a compliment is, I've never seen anyone like you. You are holy, holy, holy. That means no one like you. 
There's no one like you. There's no one like you. Isn't that way better than you don't sin? You don't sin. You don't sin. What? You're standing before God. He doesn't care about sin. He's so far above that. What's amazing is that I've never seen anything like this. You are wholly different than all others. And so as soon as you make the hairpin turn and you say, oh, holiness is about sin and that God doesn't sin, then therefore for us to be holy, you know, we can't approach God, right? We've all heard this. Oh, well, you sinned and now you can't approach God, right? You're separated from God. Don't tell Enoch. <laughs> hey, Enoch, BTW, you, you, you can't walk with God because you have sinned, right? That was pre-law. That was pre-anything. There was no law for Enoch. He just, I guess he just decided he wasn't going to play man's game and said, no, I'm going to go live with God. That'll jack you up. But anyways, that'll jack you up. He just said, I'm not playing according to those rules. I am not listening to the delusion. God loves me and I'm going to spend time with him until he walked with God and was no more. But you say, well, God's holiness, so he, you know, he can't, you know, and that makes, well, you know, he can't be around sin anymore. And so, well, don't tell Moses. Don't, you know, or, or Noah or whatever, or David. Can't be around sin no more, David. Oh, well, you know, they had the, you know, they could sacrifice the animal and it was covered. Okay, whatever. You know what I mean? Don't, don't tell Abraham. Don't tell Jacob to stop wrestling with God. He's holy, can't do that. I, I don't know what, you know what I'm saying? And so when you make holiness a morality issue, then you make it where God's austere, unapproachable because he's up here. But when you say, God, you're like no one I've ever seen before. And you're so good and so amazing. And I just want to fall down at your feet because I've never seen anyone like that. That's holiness. And that his his goodness is that he actually wants to stoop down into your mess and pull you out. That's grace. Best description of grace is to stoop. He stooped down into our mess and our delusion and said, no, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. I'm not going to allow you to believe that lie. I'm going to send myself. This is what's amazing. Is that in the idea of holiness being legality, and God had to legally do all this stuff, he then says, there's one part of God that goes, man, I really love these people and I want to save them, but oh, I just want to shoot them with my arrow of judgment and wrath, right? And you got these two gods, right? And people often say, oh, well, you know, the Old Testament's one side of God and the New Testament's another side of God. And then we, you know, some of us evangelicals kind of woke up and said, that's really dumb. Let's, let's not do that. And then we started figuring a few things out, but let's just go the rest of the way, people, and just go, no, 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 no. That, that's not how God is. There's only one side of God, because here's the problem. If you have three people standing in a circle in the perichoresis, but God has two sides, which one is relating? It messes up the Trinity to have two faces on God, let alone it messes up the character of Jesus, because why don't we find that in Jesus? Because if Jesus is the perfect expression of God, then how come we didn't see two sides of Jesus? We only saw one side. And the best description of wrath is that it's God's passionate love saying, 
No. Wrath is, wrath is dealing with anything that does not align with love. And the wrath of God is the, the resounding no. I will not let you kill yourself. I will not let you do this thing. I will not let you totally destroy yourself in this place. That's the wrath of God. It's so passionate. It's so loving. It's so fervent that it says, no, I don't care. No. And it's, it's angry at everything that's killing you and keeping you from him. And so... It's the goodness of God that says, we're going down there. We're going to become one of them. The, the, one of the most mind-blowing statements that Baxter Kruger talks about is this. He says, the cross did not begin when Jesus started carrying it. The cross began the day Jesus was born because he became a human and Jesus, and everyone goes, what did Jesus do for 30 years? And everybody likes to dream up little ideas. And I said, he was living Adam. Every day, Jesus had to wake up and fight the fight and say, no, I am one with my father and my father loves me and there is no other side. I will not tar the face of the father with what Adam thought God was. I am going to believe who God is. And every single day for 33 days of his life, he carried the cross of humanity, that we, what we had done to God. And he said, I will not bow. And as Baxter Kruger describes it, every day he beat at that lie and said, no, no, I will not bow. And the discourse that you see in the garden and the discourse that you see on the cross was the moment that Jesus plunged, was baptized into the deepest ugliest hell of delusion of what we had created God out to be. And he was seeing God as we see God and going, this is disgusting. But at the very end on the cross of Psalms 22, it says, but you have never left me and generations will come and will declare that it is finished. Every day, no, I will not bow to this lie of who God is. As you all can tell, I could probably talk about this for 17 more hours. I'm pretty fired up about it because I know I like to talk all the theology stuff and the ideas and the things, but I speak all of this because there's life upon it. There's true life upon it. There's true freedom upon it. There's true grace upon it. It's the most life-giving thing I've ever heard, and that is that God is good. Shocker. But there's so many lives that have been heaped upon, I believe, all of us. Some of us, not so much. You know, I was telling these things to Shay, and she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I'm like, well, you didn't grow up in church like I did, okay? I was like, fine. You made it. All right. We, I grew up in church. I took all the lies, okay? And I'm having to slowly have Holy Spirit chip them away. And she didn't really grow up in church, and so it just makes sense to her that God is good, and that all makes sense. Yeah. And so I'm like, consider yourself blessed right? Consider yourself very, very blessed. But the reality is, the good news is that there is life upon this. It'll change your life. It sets you free from this anxiety. I'm like, dude, us Westerners, we're so anxiety-driven because the very thing that threw Adam... Oh, man, let me hit one last thing before I let you go. I can't, I can't hold this one back. Think about this. 
it, it hit me last night. I, I was I read the whole book through last night, and then I started again this morning. And I'm like, because I'm getting it. It's like what I've been feeling for a year now, and finally words have hit me. But the the thing that threw Adam and Eve into anxiety and self-centeredness is that there could be another side to God, right? God's holding back on you. There, that means there could be another side to God. And then we as Western Christians come to people who aren't saved and say, hey, God's angry at your sin and he's got all this wrath and judgment upon you, but you can get Jesus and a veil of blood becomes between you and God and then you're good and then you're safe. And then it's like, wait, 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 wait. And so like, and so, so the angry God is now gone and now you get the nice happy God. What did we just tell them? Well, there's two sides of God. You might get one side, but we don't have 100% full assurance that that other side might not peek out every once in a while when we mess up. So the exact same lie in the garden that there could be another side to God is the exact same thing that we're telling every person that comes to Jesus, that there might be another side of God, and that's the angry, mean God. And I'm like, golly, Satan don't need to do anything. He's got us. <laughs> Just saying the same thing. You don't believe me? Let me read you a quote. Here we go. Let me read you a segment from the most, one of the most famous sermons in Western Christianity. <clears throat> What's even more great is uh, Jerry Falwell senior, uh, wrote a book or something about like some of the 10 greatest sermons ever written. And this was one of them. I'm like, yeah, that's the college I go to. And it's the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yep. And this is what Jonathan Edwards said. He says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and stains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that, on, that of an angry God that without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. <laughs> uh, the two younger people in the room are like shocked. I'm like, you need to hang around religion a little bit longer. You'd be told to read that, li- that sermon. That is the legal orientation of what God is doing on the cross. He's bending that bow now at Jesus. So we wonder why people are still dealing with the same problems in the garden because we haven't given them solution. The truth will set you free. Because, and then you have Athanasius here. Here's a quote from Athanasius. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through deceit wrought upon by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then, the creatures whom he created were on the road to ruin. What then was God? being good to do? Was he to let 
corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would it would have been better never to have created at all. Having been created to neglect to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his work before his very eyes would argue not goodness and God being but would argue not goodness in God but limitation. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. Two very different opinions there. The bow's bent, ready for you. Drenched with your blood. And that's what <clears throat> top 10 sermons of Western Christianity has created. And then Athanasius, back in about 300 AD, said, what was God being so good going to do about the problem that we had? Those are two very different tones. And it all goes back to what you believe, who God is, and I would propose that it all really goes back to what we believe about the Trinity. If we can get that one thing right, the whole ship is going to turn.